And there's a joy in us gathering together as we sing hallelujah, as we rejoice in God's amazing grace. And then we turn to Genesis 19, and I want to say, who picked this text? Who's going to make me preach this passage on this morning? I need to talk with him. For our combined worship service, we're going to read about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the Sunday in which we as a church are meant to be encouraged and uplifted. Whose fault is this? Well, I, I mean, I'd, I'd like to shift the blame to, to the calendar, to just the way the book of Genesis works out, but the reality is I picked today's text, even knowing that this was our combined worship service. But see, I don't, I don't like the blame to fall on me. But not just in schedules. I don't, I don't like the blame to fall on me when I read God's Word. And so there's a real danger when I read this passage that I can just point my finger at other people, like Sodomites. I mean, it's the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the real sinners, not, not me. And yet there's power in this passage for us, even on this day of combined worship. It's a reminder to us of the authority of God's Word, the power of God's Word, every part of it. We as a church submit ourselves to what God says. It's a reminder to us of God's judgment, a judgment that falls not on others but on me. But there is for us the promise of grace, the purpose of the church in making the gospel known. So listen to this passage as I read this chapter, a reminder of the judgment of of God, despite Abraham's intercession, judgment comes to Sodom. This is Genesis chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and, said, and, sh and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them what you, you, can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. And they said, This fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play the judge? We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. 
but his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of the dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. For the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had been as as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life, but I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, Here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant you this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly, because it cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back. She became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the, all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe to overthrow the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is older, and there's no man around here to lie with us, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then lie with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine, and the older daughter went in and lay with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I lay with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight, and you can go in and lie with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also. And the younger daughter went and lay with him again. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Even if you've never read this passage before, You already knew the outcome as soon as I said the name of the city. You know what happens to Sodom. It it would would be like me telling you that, that there was the maiden voyage of the Titanic. You already know what happens to the Titanic. Its very name reminds us of its end, its destruction. And so when we read this passage, we we feel its horror. The destruction of these cities of the plain. 
And yet, even as we read so many of the details of the story, it's not just the end of the story. The, every, every detail in the story seems to, to create further problems for us. And so, and so let's, let's, let's just look at the, the problems of this passage and then, and then see where we can find our hope today. I mean, first, we just see the overall judgment, hearing the name Sodom, so much so that, that even in the time when it was first written, the first time the, the name of the city comes up, it comes up back in chapter 13. And so as soon as the city is named, when, when Lot is just choosing where he's going to go live, the, the name Sodom is mentioned, and, and, and our author has to remind us, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Because what's the one thing you know about Sodom and Gomorrah? It's destruction. But we're told back in Genesis 13, then verse 13, a description of the city. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. And so the judgment which comes in Genesis 19 is God's response to sin and suffering. God in, hears the cry the cry that the outcry that has gone up to the Lord against the city of Sodom, God is the one who is responding. Look, at, look back at our chapter, Genesis 19, verse 13. When the warning comes for Lot to get out, it's because the angels are there. They are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great. He has sent us to destroy it. You see, the judgment against Sodom is God's loving response to the outcry against sin. And, and, and that might feel counterintuitive to us, to think of judgment as a picture of love, but it, it's because God will not let injustice go unchecked. Judgment is coming. Abraham asked the question in the previous chapter, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, now God steps forward and says, do you want to see what justice looks like? It looks like the punishment against sin. And Genesis 19 is meant to be a warning to us, but not merely a warning to the ancient world, people who, who heard the name Sodom and thought of its destruction. That's how it's repeated throughout the, the Old Testament. It, it was meant to be a warning to us. All right, flip with me to, keep, you can keep a finger here or maybe slide a, your, your bulletin in to, as, a, as a bookmark, but, but turn all the way to the back of your Bibles to the little book of Jude. Jude is so small that it, there, there are no chapter divisions, so, so we're going to turn to Jude 7, which is just the seventh verse of this little book. It's, it's, it's the second to last book of the Bible. It's right before the book of Revelation. Jude, a, a letter describing for us in the New Testament— at the time of, after the time of Jesus Christ, describing for us the judgment which is coming to us. And so in Jude chapter 7, we're told about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in a, in a similar way to the judgment that, we've, that Jude has already mentioned. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. See, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is meant to make us think of destruction. That was its purpose. It was an example for us, a warning 
The, the clarion call of God to say, listen now, judgment is here. This is what happens to sinners. And so this warning, should, it should frighten you. If you've not found hope in the good news of the gospel, if you don't have hope of escape, then the warning that the city is about to be destroyed, that the, the judgment of God is coming, which, which the judgment of Jude is worse than the judgment of Genesis. Jude is talking about eternal punishment. That should be frightening to you when you look at yourself and see your own immorality, your own perversion, your own wickedness. And this warning should, should motivate us then because judgment is real. Judgment is coming. I mean, church, you and I have the message of escape. We have the answer to the coming wave of judgment which God will bring. The justice of God will be seen by everyone. We have the message of hope. What do we do with it? Do we hide it away because we're embarrassed by it? We're embarrassed by this description of God as a God who, who gets angry at our sin. We're worried about our own hypocrisy, the, the sin in our, our own lives, so that we never warn anyone else about sin. No, church, you and I have good news. Yes, judgment is here, but God has brought rescue. And so what hope is there then in the face of God's judgment? Jude has mentioned for us the sexual immorality, the perversion of Sodom. And so let's turn again to Genesis 19. We see the, the, our problem is not only with the judgment of God, but, but specifically with the sins of Sodom. I mean, you, the horrific scene when these angels enter the, enter the city, and they, they're in the house of Lot, and the people of the city, the men of the city, surround the house and say, bring them out now. We want to have sex with them. That's horrific. I mean, this is, this, we're, we're in the, the PG-13 section of the Bible, and we're going to kind of talk in euphemisms as we need to for little ears that are listening. I have a son with little ears who's here as well. But what is taking place here is horrible. It's the, it, it, it's the perversion of a city saying, we'll do whatever we want, we'll find pleasure however we want, whomever we have to harm to do so. And yet their sin is not merely the sin of, of violence. Their sin is the, the, the horrible destruction of homosexuality. Now I know, I know that for, for me to say that homosexuality is a sin, I've offended a bunch of you. But, but I'm not saying it. I mean, I am. I'm repeating it. But I didn't, I didn't make this up. I'm saying what the Bible says here. Jude made clear the sin of Genesis 19. It, it, homosexuality is explicitly condemned in the Old Testament. It, you, you can flip with me to the, the book of Romans, Paul's letter, which, which shows us the, the sinfulness of humanity. And one of the ways in which our hearts get twisted is that we twist the good gift God has given us of sexual, sexuality into an unnatural and sinful, shameful lust. In Romans 1, we're, we're again in the New Testament, we have the Apostle Paul describing for us the ways in which we twist our hearts. And so in, in Romans 1, verse 26, we read, because of this, because we have, we have stopped worshiping God, because of this, God gave them over sinners. He gave sinners over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men. 
and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. The Bible is clear. God has given us standards. He, he made us to be known and to be loved, to love one another, but, but we take his good gifts and we pervert them. Now here, though, church, there's a danger for us to kind of point our fingers at Sodom and say, yep, that's the problem. They're the problem. But, but even when the Bible speaks about the sin of homosexuality, it, it never stops there. If, if we keep reading the list of sins in Romans chapter 1, it, it's the sins that encompass all of us. The, the, the Bible says, Paul continues in, in Romans 1 verse 29, that they have sinners have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murders, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And even in the Old Testament, while it identifies the, the sexual perversion of Sodom as, as their sin, even the Old Testament itself will, will describe the, the greater sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. See, but you and I need a standard by which we can say what is right and what is wrong. We need to be able to turn back to God's authoritative word because otherwise, what are you left with? I mean, maybe, you, maybe you really are here. You're offended today that I have, that I have labeled, labeled certain actions that, that you think are, are acceptable, and I've called them sin. Maybe you're offended by that. But, but how would you determine what's right and wrong? Generally, the way we try and do that is, well, it's just sort of what feels right to me, and what feels right to me is, is sort of what people around me have, have, have decided is right. Well, which people? I mean, which people do you let determine what's right and wrong? How big is the group? And, and when do they make this determination? Do, do you base your decision on, on sexual ethics based on what people believe right in this moment? Or how about what people believed five years ago? Certainly not 50 years ago. That was stupid, what they believed. But, or, or do we have to anticipate what will people believe in, in five or ten years? See, if, if the standard is always moving, then you have no standard at all. I, I, I play recreational hockey, so you've, you've heard me talk about this. And, and Steve, one of my friends, when I walked in, this was several years ago, I walked in, and, and sometimes as a, as a pastor who plays hockey, the, the first thing that happens when I, when I enter the locker room, I'm literally bag on my shoulder, I haven't even found a seat yet. They'll throw out some big theological question to see if they can rattle me. And so the big question on this day, this was during the time in which Penn State was sadly and tragically in the news because of the abuse of children taking place on its campus. One of my teammates says, so, so what do you think of the, 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 the Penn State stuff? And I kind of furrowed my, I was, I'm like trying to figure out, what's, what's the trap here for me? Like I don't, I don't see the trap. I mean, maybe as he's saying that there's, there's abuse which takes place inside the church, and so therefore I'm going to be embarrassed by abuse that takes, and so I, I just said, the assault and abuse of children is sin. It deserves to be punished today, and it will certainly, even if, even if violators escape judgment, will be, will be judged on the day in which God comes. And I believe that because the Bible tells me that because these children were made by God to be loved by God, and they should have been protected. And he was like, oh, I guess that's a pretty reasonable answer. Like, the, the, I, there was no trap. I don't know what he was. And so I just stopped, and I said, but Steve, what about you? 
What do, you, do you think it's wrong? Yeah, that's terrible. Good. I'm glad you and I agree that the abuse of children, the sexual assault of children is wrong. But do you know not every culture has believed that? I mean, there were times, probably in the world today, but certainly in the ancient world, where if you were a wealthy enough man, then you could, as a patron, have young boys, prepubescent boys even, for your own pleasure. And everybody agreed it was okay because, you know what, that slave boy wasn't going to get an education otherwise. You are doing something good for him. Steve, what would you say to somebody in that culture? See, I would say it's abuse of children and needs to stop. What would you say? Uh, I, I think it's bad. Why? Why is it bad? Um, be, because I, I guess we think maybe I've talked to some people that it's, that it's bad. And then he stopped and said, how did you get me into this? <laughs> that I, don't, I can't even say that the abuse of children is wrong. I said, I didn't start it. And I haven't said anything except ask you questions. See, you and I are desperate for a standard because otherwise the standard becomes, well, what do people around me think? Well, let's take a poll of the men on, of Sodom on this night. What do they want to do? Violent sexual assault. Are we okay with that? No. Even in the ancient world, anyone, e even those that would have agreed with, with homosexual relationships would have condemned what, what they were doing in Sodom. But but by what standard? See, when I actually need a standard, when God tells us what is right and wrong, that is actually for our good. Because all of us draw lines somewhere. But why and where? See, the sins of Sodom, the sins which, yes, are sexual sins, but, but the Old Testament will make clear. If you read through the prophets, the sins of Sodom, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel tell us are oppression, adultery, lying, arrogance, lack of pity for the vulnerable. Jude reminded us it was their sexual perversion. All of these sins stand judged by God. And the sins of Sodom expose our own sins. See, what hope is there for us in the face of Sodom's sins? Now, maybe we might think it's Lot, the, the nephew of Abraham, the, the one to whom God has made great promises. Maybe it will be Lot who will be the one who will be righteous and do what is right. And yet, at every instance, Lot shows himself to be a failure. Yes, he rightly protects these men who have come into his house and tells the angry mob, no, you cannot have them. But, but what's, his, what's his strategy? I mean, there are a few times that reading a commentary, you know, a biblical explanation, a textbook explaining a biblical passage, there are a few times that, that reading a, a commentary brings me to tears. But this week, Lot will trade his daughters? This cannot be the right answer. I mean, every one of us, there's a revulsion when he says, take, take my girls, you can have them. Now, my daughter's not here right now. She's back helping in junior church. But you as a father are going to trade your daughter? This is not right. Lot is a failure. He's complicit in their sin. He's trying to trade sin for sin. He's trying to solve the problem of sin by just heaping more sin upon it. Lot is unsuccessful. He's unheroic. And then, and then notice, even when he makes the argument to his, his sons-in-law, it's time to go. Let's flee. Judgment is coming. Things have gotten bad. I've, I've been warned by God that judgment will be here. What's their response? You've got to be kidding me. 
He has no moral authority, no moral persuasion over them. Maybe because he's been full of it for, for more than just this night. And even in verse 16, even with the warning of the angels, look at verse 16, Lot hesitated. The only way Lot is rescued is that the angels physically drag him out of this city. And even once he's outside the city, what does he do? He pleads. Not, not, to, not to be protected by God as he flees into the hills. But what does he say? You know, kind of a delicate guy. That'd be a little too hard on me. So how about this little town? Can I, can I go and stay here? But you see the irony by the end of the chapter. He's not willing, not content to stay there. Even under the protection of God, he, he ultimately does flee to the hills. And tragically, Lot's actions... You see the destruction that, it takes, that takes place in his own family. His sons-in-law destroyed. His wife, when she turns back, disobeying the direct commandment of God, she's consumed by the judgment which falls on the city. And then the chapter, it, as if that all wasn't bad enough, then we end Sometime later, after they've been living in, hidden away in a cave, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing beautiful about that scene. They're hiding in the darkness, the darkness of a cave in the darkness of night when his daughters concoct a plan. Those whom he was willing to trade when their lives were under threat now will trade themselves. They will debase him and themselves. Lot's sin destroys and consumes his whole family. And so what hope is there? in the face of Lot's sin. See, Genesis 19 forces us to see the reality of God's judgment, the seriousness of God's righteous response to sinners. But this is not merely a warning for Lot and his family. This is a warning for us. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, the Gospels tell the story of, of Jesus' ministry on earth, and, and in Luke chapter 17, Jesus is, is, is warning us by pointing us back to the story of Sodom, warning us again of the coming judgment. He's saying what we heard already in Jude, that the judgment which fell then is a judgment which is coming for all of us. In Luke chapter 17, in, in verse 28, we read that the, the danger of coming judgment, it was the same in the days of Lot. This is Luke 17, verse 28. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. See, Genesis 19 is not, a, not merely a historical account of what happened in, in one set of cities thousands of years ago. It is a present warning of God's coming judgment. And so what hope is there for us in the face of God's judgment? Well, let's look again at, at the glimpses of hope we have here in Genesis 19. Look at verse 16 of our chapter. In verse 16, when Lot hesitates, the angels... The, the, the angels grasped his hand in the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city. Why? For the Lord was merciful 
to them. He is merciful to them. They deserve the judgment that fell, but God showed mercy to them. And why? Why is God merciful to Lot? It can't be because of anything good in Lot. At every step of the way, Lot takes his sin and then multiplies it, magnifies it, makes it worse. We're shown what a failure he is. But the New Testament, the, the, the book of Peter, Peter, one of Jesus' apostles, well, actually, he will call Lot a righteous man in 2 Peter chapter 2. He calls him a righteous man. Now, is Peter just mistaken? Did he forget his Sunday school lesson from Genesis 19? Did he forget what kind of man Lot really was? No, he understood the theological truth which is taking place in our chapter. Lot was righteous not because of himself. He was made righteous by another. See, because in Genesis 19, we are given the picture. We, 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 we've walked with, with Lot through the destruction. We saw the, the city destroyed. But then we're taken back to see the vantage point of Abraham. Abraham, the one chosen by God the one to whom God made his promises. Abraham, who in the, the chapter before had, had pleaded with God for, the, for the, the rescue of this city. But look back at verse 27 of Genesis 19. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. Now verse 28, he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah toward all the land of the plain, he saw the dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. See, Abraham, at the end of the conversation in chapter 18, in his pleading with God, he, he likely suspected this was what he would see this morning. But perhaps he held out hope. If there had been only ten righteous in the city, God had promised he would not destroy the city. But here on this morning, Abraham stands helpless, watching the smoke rise, having, having, with, with fire having fallen from heaven, the judgment coming directly from God. He sees the destruction. But look at verse 29. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham. See, Abraham on this morning, looking at the, the rising of smoke, may have thought God has forgotten, God has abandoned, God has turned aside, God, God does not care. But we are told, God remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. See, Lot is declared in the New Testament to be righteous, not because of his righteousness, but because of the intercession of Abraham. Because Abraham stood and made a theological argument, God, rescue the righteous. And God, in his mercy, rescued Lot because he remembered Abraham's intercession, and so Lot is considered righteous by God. One who is a sinner living among sin, one whose sin is exposed before us here, considered righteous. The righteous intercession of Abraham transforming Lot. But Abraham stood without any hope of intercession. He stood and watched the city smolder. And so what hope is there for us in the judgment of God? 
Well, I already read to you from the Gospel of Luke. In Luke chapter 17, where Jesus warned of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he told of the coming judgment. Well, just a couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 19, during the triumphal entry as Jesus enters the city, Jesus sees this city, though, as a city that is about to be destroyed. He knows that the coming judgment of God will fall upon the people of God. And so we read in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, as he saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus, in the face of God's judgment, weeps for sinners. But what hope would there be if he is an intercessor only like Abraham? If he can only plead with God and sort of walk away from the conversation to see what will God do tomorrow? If Jesus merely weeps over a city, if if Jesus is merely sorry for the judgment which will come, then what hope is there for us? But see, the Gospel of Luke does not end in chapter 19. Jesus does not end there in in weeping over the city. No, Jesus says, as the intercessor, as the one who pleads on the behalf of sinners, he says, I will take their place. And so hanging on the cross, the Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus, looking at the sinners who had nailed him to the cross, prays to God a prayer of intercession. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. The righteous one died in our place. Not merely pleading, not merely standing on the sidelines, not simply watching the smoke of Sodom rise to heaven, but puts himself in the path of God's judgment, takes the judgment upon himself in his death, So that uh, upon his death, the guards who have been mocking Jesus, the centurion who stands there, looks at him and says, surely this was a righteous man. Hallelujah. There is hope for us when we read Genesis 19. Is there anyone righteous? Yes, there is. There is one man who is righteous. Jesus, the Son of God, who gave his life for us. See, God remembered his covenant to Abraham, the promises that he had made. And so he saved Lot. Lot was considered righteous, even though he came as a sinner. But that's the offer that's given to you and I. When we see what Jesus has done, that he died on the cross for us, then we can be made righteous because Jesus, the righteous one, took the punishment of God in himself, upon himself. There is no wrath left to be poured out on you if you put your trust in Christ because Jesus paid it all. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. See, in church, this is our hope then. Because we live in a world where the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah could be listed for us. We live in a church where the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah would describe us apart from the gospel. The judgment of God is coming. We have to raise the warning. We have the good news of hope Jesus, the righteous one, died in my place. This is what motivates us as a church. There is an urgency in the coming judgment. Jesus says it will come like a thief in the night. You will not be able to anticipate it. And yet you and I have good news. We have the hope of rescue. We have the path by which we can flee, by fleeing to Jesus. Will you come today and find your hope 
in Jesus Christ, the righteous Son of God who gave his life for you. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the good news of the gospel announced to us in your word. We give you thanks that Jesus, the righteous one, died for us. And so, Lord, where we feel the weight of our sin, even where we, where we are uncomfortable with your description of sin, Lord, I pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to your authority, that we would acknowledge that, that you are the good God who loves us. We would confess our sins, and that we would find forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice that, that your word reminds us that you are merciful that you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you forgive us because of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you are the God who is just, who always does what is right. And Lord, we thank you that you punished our sin in Jesus Christ. So let us find our hope, our eternal, our everlasting hope in Jesus Christ. Jesus who died for our sins. Jesus who's been raised from the dead. Jesus who reigns as the King forever. Amen.